We're teaching facets of the cross, and we're following a metaphor that, of course, breaks down eventually all metaphors do. But we're teaching facets of the cross. We're treating the cross somewhat like a diamond, and we're somewhat like the jeweler who has a microscope. And diamonds have many cuts or facets. Uh, it's what, if you will, give rise to the brilliance and overall radiance of a, of a diamond. Of course, we know, as we said last week, crucifixions were a gladiatorious affair. They were a bloody affair. Uh, they were quite gruesome, and in that sense, the analogy breaks down. It's not uh, quite like a diamond in that sense. However, the cross in Scripture has many facets. Yes, we're sort of used to the one drum being beat, and it may be the uh, crux of the whole aim of the crucifixion at one level, and that's that Jesus does die for our transgressions. Both Israel's specific curse uh, for breaking covenant, going all the way back to Sinai, and both for the world's sins. And that's important. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is one drum. And we tend to, if you will, and not that we can ever actually overbeat that drum, but we tend to only uh, pound that drum. However, the New Testament portrays many reasons to as why specifically Jesus died and what that great event meant. Now, of course, we can never exhaust it. Uh, we're somewhat limited with human words to describe this great act of God in history. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to describe every facet of the crucifixion. Uh, that is impossible, of course. So put on our jeweler's microscopes, and we're going to examine specific facets of the crucifixion. Today we'll be focusing on um, Jesus' high priest and the crucifixion. So we'll go ahead and start with the introduction. We'll go from there. I have a feeling I'm going to repeat myself. In staying with our jeweler's analogy from last week, we are putting on our microscopes and zooming in on the various facets of meaning given to the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth within the first century. However, before we continue, we should be asking one very important question. Why is Jesus' crucifixion so different from the thousands of other peasant crucifixions in the first century? After all, the crucifixion in and of itself was actually the extinguishing of all of Jesus' followers' hopes and not the reverse. Remember uh, the disciples on the Emmaus Road in the final chapters of Luke? They're somewhat sullen as they ran into Jesus, though unaware that it was Jesus, uh, tell Jesus that they had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And so we know that the crucifixion, if you will, wasn't really a central motif for what the great Messiah was going to come and do in uh, Israel's great time of renewal. So for them, that was somewhat uh, an extinguishing of their hopes. The crucifixion was precisely what the disciples did not want. When you read chapters like Mark 10, and Jesus asks his disciples, uh, you know, who do they say that I am? And they somewhat go to a list of Elijah or John the Baptist, etc., etc. And then finally, Peter, as the spokesperson of the disciples, which he generally is throughout the gospel, says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to prophesy that he will be crucified and beat and rise on the third day. Of course, to Peter, this just cannot fit precisely within what the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is supposed to go down to Jerusalem, do away with Pilate and the Romans, uh, remove the corrupted temple authorities, Caiaphas and his ilk, and then establish himself as king and potentially maybe establish a Levitical king or Levitical priest, I should say, which is important for the discussion today, is how can Jesus fulfill what was normally in Israel, two roles, uh, designed for people of two specific backgrounds. The high priest was supposed to be of Levitical descent, specifically Zedekite line. We won't get into that today, but he's supposed to be a Levite. 
and, he's, and the king was supposed to be of the line, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah. I, I want to say lion, but the line of the tribe of Judah, thus Davidic lineage. So you could only be a priest if you were a Levite, and could only be the king uh, if you were of the tribe of Judah. Of course, we know that Jesus is of the lineage of David, but how can he, in a sense, function as our high priest, knowing full well that he cannot be of both uh, stocks? So we know that his mom's not Levitical stock. He's not a mixture of the two. Jesus, when foretold, is part and parcel to his messianic identity. For crucifixion in the ancient world meant that one had ultimately failed at accomplishing their task, usually in the attempt to resisting oppressive rulers. Uh, rulers. Remember, remember, we uh, used the uh, analogy from last week that Rome somewhat using the crucifixion as a parody to the attempt to resisting their authoritative rule. If you wanted to rise up against the power of Rome, if you were in a province where Rome ruled, and you wanted to resist their authority, then they would rise you up on a cross and make a good example of you uh, as a warning to others not to do the same thing. It was a politically explosive act. Remember, people in the ancient world don't get crucified necessarily for teaching you to love your enemies. Is this, is this one right here? Is that muted? Okay. Uh, for teaching you to love your enemies. What Jesus gets crucified for, we see on the titulus, and that's uh, Jesus, uh, the king of Israel, not Jesus, but the king, of, the king of the Jews. And that is a way of saying, ha, you thought you were going to be king, you thought you were going to take Caesar's role here, now we'll lift you up, here's your ascension to kingship. And of course, the crown of thorns speaks volume to that fact. A great example is recorded in a first century historian named Josephus, who writes, bless you, Concerning a Hasmonean ruler, Hasmonean ruler, uh, just so you guys know, in the second century, and if you, if, you might as well just get to know this period of history if you come to academia, the second century is a lot happens that makes a big impact on how we understand the New Testament. One of those major events in Judea at the time is the Maccabean Revolt, where a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus and his father uh, rebel against the Greek rulers at that time who were ruling Judea. They end up winning, and Judas Maccabees and his uh, descendants are what we call the Hasmonean dynasty, and they are kind of in power until Rome in 63 B.C. So uh, for a little about 100 years or so, under the Hasmonean dynasty, Judah, uh, or Judea, is, that's kind of anachronistic, but the area of Jerusalem and Judea is autonomous. They rule on their own ground. Now, of course, this did not mean that there wasn't major political upheaval and uh, that was always the case. However, there was a major event where many were crucified in the second century. And we're just going to read briefly. Um, yes, so slide one. Now, you obviously can't read that, so you can just tune in. Now, as Alexander, he was the uh, present king of Jerusalem. And there's sort of a, a civil war going on in Jerusalem. And this is Josephus recording about crucifixions being done in the second century. Remember, the question is, crucifixion does not in and of itself necessarily entail any messiahship connotations. Very important to understand. Yeah, let's turn the one on in the back if, if we want one on. Oh, it's, yeah. Are you guys comfortable? Okay. I thought you were hot, so I, I know I'm sweating, but that's, that's, that's regular. Now, as Alexander fled to the mountains, 6,000 of the Jews hereupon came together from Demetrius, the person who was fighting him, 
to him out of pity at the change of his fortune, upon which Demetrius was afraid, Demetrius versus Alexander, and retired out of the country, after which the Jews fought against Alexander, the Hasmonean king, and being beaten were slain in great numbers in the several battles which they had. And when he had shut up the most powerful of them in the city, Bethomi, he besieged them therein. And when he had taken the city and gotten the men into his power, he brought them to Jerusalem and did one of the most barbarous actions in the world to them. For as he was, for as he was feasting with his concubines in the sight of all the city, he ordered about 800 of them to be crucified. This is one of the only recordings we have of a Jew actually crucifying other Jews, somewhat of an anomaly. And while they were living, he ordered uh, the throats of their children and wives to be cut before their eyes. This was indeed by way of revenge for the injuries they had done him. Probably one of the few churches that are talking about this sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but the ancient world was a brutal world. Again, Jesus doesn't come and the crucifixion doesn't occur because all things are rosy in Jerusalem in the first century. We have to come let somewhat understand uh, the stark situation that the Jews were in on, in the first century under the Roman Empire. What is important to note is that these crucifixions meant that those who had resisted Alexander's reign had, in fact, lost. Of course, again, we see this in the New Testament. The moment Jesus is crucified, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, believe the, uh, mo the movement to be extinguished at that point. And this is why we see them all flee and hide for fear of the Jews, because they don't want to suffer the same fate. Of course, at that moment in time, they did not perceive the crucifixion as Jesus' ultimate victory uh, in light of his, uh, what he had taught and done. Moreover, no one, and I mean no one, would have thought to proclaim any of the tragically slain, the 800, as Messiah. But why, after Jesus' crucifixions, at the hand of the Romans, do his followers begin to boldly proclaim him as Israel's long-prophesied Messiah? One word, and probably some of you can guess what that word is. What is the one singular reason why Jesus, uh, if you will, crucifixion at the hand of the Romans is the catalyst for him becoming Messiah? Yeah, good job. Resurrection. Okay, so there it is. Uh, resurrection, or in the Greek, the word is uh, anastasis. It's, com it's a combination of two words, ana, again, and stasis, to stand, uh, if you will, literally to stand up again. This is an act, and this is so important, we tend to not really take serious what the resurrection is and means. Remember, without the resurrection, the crucifixion meant total failure for Jesus' movement. Uh, if, in other words, Caesar's no is the last word. However, resurrection is God's yes, so God has the last word. This is an act whereby God brings back to bodily life someone who has thoroughly suffered bodily death. This is not a spirit. This is not a ghost. This is not a warm feeling of Jesus' presence, even though he had died, uh, contra Crossan and Borg. This is a literal bodily resurrection. Uh, what's important about this teaching is it did have significance for Israel's story at that point. For them, the resurrection was to occur when Israel's renewal uh, happened. So in one sense, God is saying Israel's renewal is to occur precisely in this man and his movement. The second thing it means is this means, uh, if you will, Jesus becomes the prototype for what God will do for the rest of creation and those who follow him. In other words, resurrection, Jesus is the prototype for what will happen to all of creation. Resurrection. 
And this is why we say the hope, the Christian hope all throughout the New Testament is not going to heaven when he died. That's the holding cell for great righteous souls in Christ. The ultimate hope is anastasis. This means that you go through heaven, out the other side, into the same body that you had before. Be it you got cremated, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter what ended up happening to you. God, the creator, is going to put it all back together and then put you into new creation. This is the hope because the resurrection affirms the material world and what God ultimately plans with doing to all of it, putting it to death, raising it to new life. Again, if we stop at heaven, our story stops short. Uh, so resurrection is key. So resurrection is the reason they believed these things happened. Now, of course, I can quote no one better than N.T. Wright when discussing the importance of the resurrection. However, and you don't have to look at your notes. <laughs> I t uh, I, half of the notes are up here, unless you've got Matthews. How, however, historical investigation of the rise of the resurrection belief indicates that both the, here's what's important, both the empty tomb and the appearances were necessary for the belief to begin and to be sustained. Both were needed. If the tomb had been found empty, but Jesus had not appeared, it would have been assumed that someone had taken the body. If people had, remember, we can't relegate this to people in the ancient world were more naive. They kind of believe in spirits and ghosts and demons. And now us post-enlightened people, well, we know better. The only true reality is science, et cetera, et cetera. In the ancient world, there was one fact that everybody knew, and that's if you died, you did not rise. And that's what's actually stated by the person who uh, created Mars Hill, uh, where Paul is preaching in Acts 17 and says, by the resurrection of the dead, which is somewhat a reversal of what the founder had said, because the founder of Mars Hill said, once one dies, he does not anastasis, he does not rise. So when Paul goes there, he says, from the resurrection of the dead, God will judge uh, all when he returns or something along those lines. So the ancient world knew for a fact that the dead did not rise. They weren't that naive. So when they went out to claim anastasis, they, that wasn't a word. They weren't using the wrong term. Remember when Peter goes, he goes in jail and acts, and then before you know it, he's at the... Uh, the door knocking, and then one of the slave girls here, I believe slave girls, don't quote me on that, servant girls, more like it, hears him on the other side of the door, and she says, it's his ghost. So even, she did not say, it's his uh, anastasis. They knew the difference between a bodily resurrection and a ghost. The word's very technical. It's a very specific word. That is bodily resurrection. If the tomb had been found empty, but Jesus had not appeared, they would have assumed someone stole the body. If people had reported appearances of Jesus, but his body had still been in the tomb, the disciples would have believed they had seen a ghost or a vision, as in the case of Peter. Such things being well known in, this, in their world, only the combination, missing body plus appearing of Jesus, would produce the early Christian belief. This makes it intrinsically unlikely that the stories would have developed with only one of these elements and the other one becoming attached at a later stage. So the two elements, empty tomb and bodily appearances of Jesus, need to be held together in order to sustain the claim that early Christianity makes. Jesus is the king. So resurrection, anastasis, is the reason they start to go back and reconsider what had in fact happened, if you will, roughly within the 72-hour period before this. Otherwise, the crucifixion means Jesus lost. Jesus had failed. But now the crucifixion becomes altogether different. Remember, thousands are crucified on either side of, 
on either side of the crucifixion itself, and two were on the other side of Jesus. So no one, again, a crucifixion meant nothing until the resurrection follows it. So that's kind of important. That gives us the green light to make sense of this event. In other words, the Jesus movement initiated in Galilee and brought down to Jerusalem on Passover would have stopped at the foot of the cross had it not been for the double fact of an empty tomb and bodily appearance of Jesus of Nazareth, who had died three days earlier by way of Roman crucifixion. God's resurrection of Jesus, and that's important uh, because it's not just Jesus rising himself. This is the creator God acting within history to overturn the crucifixion. In other words, Rome's no is God's ultimate yes. God's resurrection of Jesus meant... Here's the, uh, the kicker. The crucifixion that had preceded it was, in fact, the unexpected but predetermined part of the plan. That is, no one thought that God's great act of salvation uh, or redemption in history would include a cross, yet mysteriously this had been part of God's plan of salvation from the very beginning, even from the foundations of the earth, says Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. Thus, it is the resurrection above all else that caused the earliest followers of Jesus to take a second look at what happened the fateful day, which included the attempt to put into human terms the big why of the crucifixion. Again, this is one of the reasons most of us, when I came to Christianity, I had no problem believing faith apprehended God's spirit, uh, wakens our hearts and minds and whatnot. However, if that's not your sort of way of approaching things, you're more of the rational human being. This is a great way to approach the validity of the Christian faith, is we have to explain why the early kerygma, or message of Christianity, was that Jesus had risen and that he was going to return. Why would they say this unless the double fact, again, of an empty tomb and bodily resurrection? For them, this was as, as astonishing to them as it would have been to anybody then and anybody within our scientific world even today. So the resurrection to me, uh, as someone who's a little bit more logical, makes sense of the evidence that we have for the rise of the early church and the message that they proclaimed in the face of uh, extreme conditions like persecution. Remember, why herald Jesus as the Messiah, the king of the world, and face martyrdom or be thrown to wild dogs or whatever or face uh, such suffering if you didn't absolutely believe that the person you had followed and saw crucified 72 hours earlier was the same person who showed up to you three days later and was resurrected. Remember, this cannot be a resuscitation, as we talked about last week. Uh, remember, if Jesus had just knocked on the door and he had practiced this with Lazarus, as some theories say, and he practices with Lazarus, and then uh, in the cool of the tomb, he breaks open the probably 80 pounds of spice and I uh, think, you know, material wrapped around his body, breaks it open, then moves, and then roots several soldiers, and then goes to the door and says, hey, you know, bleeding out of every orifice, hey, I'm resurrected. Uh, they're not going to believe this is an anastasis. So it's very important. This is where our, the crux of our hope, even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise, our hope, is, our faith is futile, and uh, we're living our Christian lives in vain, so to speak. So the resurrection is foundational. To me, it makes sense, and it's the best way to explain the rise of the early church. Now, so with that said, 
now we have a reason why we would want to study the cross. Why even uh, take a second look at the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth? That is, uh, now we can take a look. Now, we're going to look at the specific facet of the cross. Today, we're going to zoom in. Last week, we did martyr and pattern. Today, we're going to do the cross as God's sympathos or God's sympathy. And this is something that is, again, also um, often neglected in our culture. So we'll read Hebrews 4. 14 through 510. Hector, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you read that for us? 410 through, uh, I'm sorry, 414 through 510. We'll just go ahead and start straight with the notes. Perhaps, without knowing it, we often equate the God of the Bible with the God created of the 18th century Enlightenment, the God of deism. This is why, usually when we discuss, is Jesus God, we've got to be really tentative about that statement, because there are many gods, first of all, and it, we need to ask ourselves which God, in fact, is being, if you will, exegeted or revealed in Jesus Christ, as John 1 says. It's not the God of the Enlightenment, which we'll quickly define here. This isn't the God who's just far away and then one day decides to act, comes into history in Jesus, and then goes off a long way, a ways again. That's the God of the Enlightenment. And unfortunately, when we discuss how Jesus is, in fact, related to the one creator God, we've got to get our deity right. 
because the person you're discussing this with may actually have another sort of deity in mind. And if it's the God of the Enlightenment, then no, Jesus is not God. But if it's the one creator God whom we see in the Old Testament, namely Yahweh, who is both imminent and transcendent, and we see him, if you will, acting in creation through, if you will, the temple, the Torah, the Shekinah, the angel of the Lord, different ways, uh, wisdom that we see and heard on Wednesday night several weeks ago. These were the different ways that the one creator God, though not a part of his creation like pantheism, he wasn't all as God, God is all. He was transcendent from the creation, but he was intimately related to it as well. Both transcendent and imminent. This is the God of, who, of whom we speak is being revealed in Jesus. That's important. Now, the God of the Enlightenment, just to correct you if you, this is your God, uh, deism increasingly became a philosophical position to the effect that God is the creator, but then does not intervene in nature or history. In a common image, the world is likened to a clock. Both have a creator, once put in motion, each runs perfectly well without further reference to its maker. Remember, this is the God of de deism. So, unfortunately, most of the people that you talk to when they discuss how Jesus is God, they have the God of deism in mind. And we have to clarify specifically first which God it is that we're speaking of before we can even get to that big question. This God is much like an absentee landlord, one that owns the property, so to speak, but does not live there. We imagine a God who views the suffering of the world, war, famine, pain, and death from a safe haven untouched by the world's suffering. Nevertheless, this idea is not entirely new. The ancient Epicurean philosophers held on to an early form of it. Even the Stoic philosophers, whose God was defined on different terms, had not much dissimilar views to how God, or the gods, related to human suffering. Let's take a brief look at their different views. So first we'll look at the Stoics. The Stoics believed that God's disposition, and that's uh, Z, the guy in the background, the old guy with the beard, is Zeno. He's the founder of the Stoic philosoph uh, philosophical movement, begun, I believe, in the 4th century. Uh, and they were, f they were called Stoics because they were famous for preaching at the Stoa, which is kind of like a porch uh, in the middle of the cities where uh, business was done. So the Stoics believed that God's disposition to human suffering, here's the important word, was apatheia. The Greek word made up from apo, meaning without, and pathos, or feeling. We derive our word apathy from this word. This means that God, pantheistic, all is God, that's the Stoics' view, is that the creation was synonymous with God. The creation was God, God was creation. Had a lack of feeling towards human plight. In other words, he feels nothing. In other words, the gods are apathetic. So, again, a lot of us have even a stoical view of God, a God who's up on the throne, who is so distant from human suffering, uh, our own human suffering. If you've ever lost a loved one, or you've experienced death or sickness or disease, pain or war, these horrible atrocities or even the uh, heavy boot of injustice, you feel that God is somehow up there untouched by these events. He's just stoic, or as the Stoics would say, he's apathetic, or his primary attribute is apatheia. The next one are the Epicureans, and this is Epicurus, that's the guy who founded the Epicurean movement, roughly an, an, uh, the same century, the 4th century, and uh, were popular in Athens. Remember, we, when you read Acts 17, well, we'll go there in a moment, Epicurus believed that the god, something in there, hold on, can't see, the Epicureans believed that the gods dwelt in intermedia, 
To them, the gods occupied the spaces between the worlds unaffected by negative human conditions. So these weren't gods who were a part of creation. These were gods who were, in fact, separate from the created order, but they lived in intermedia. They were, they, were, they were in another chasm altogether, living in blessedness and happiness, maybe to rear their head to launch a lightning bolt at a ship or whatnot. But other than that, they lived in blessedness and didn't want to interfere into human affairs. And they, were, uh, they lived in intermedia. So the Stoics, uh, their gods were Apatheia, the Epicurious gods. They lived in intermedia, again, even in one sense, apathetic, unconcerned about the human plight. With these ancient and modern views of God's disposition, oh, uh, let me really briefly, uh, the Epicureans believed, again, that the gods were far away, simply put, and uh, the Stoics believed that God was one with the created order. When we see Paul in Acts 17, on Mars Hill, and that's in Athens, the place where the philosophers do business. He, he says two very important things. He's addressing these two philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who like to do, or who like to uh, say and hear of nothing, or tell or hear of things new or whatnot. Um, what he says is interesting. The first thing he says is that God created, and that's important because for the Stoics, God hadn't created, he was a part of creation. So initially, right out launching about the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ is the God who who created us, who created the first man, Adam. Then he goes on to say that, uh, that he's not far away from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. So this is also a usurpation of the gods of the Epicureans who think the gods dwell in intermedia. This god is both creator and he's close to each one of us, which is a usurpation of both the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophical schools' views, if you will, their theological and philosophical views of God. So it's kind of a neat little thing if you're aware of the views, he, the views of the people he's addressing at that point. I thought that was cool. I had a, I've been waiting for months to get that out. So there it is. Happy. What these ancient and modern views of God's disposition share is that the God's overall, of God's overall separateness one who is untouched when we lose a loved one, suffer sickness or disease, are victimized by injustice, and ultimately succumb to death. The radical message of Hebrews is that the Son of God, who in chapter 1 is in fact called God, when you read chapter 1 if you did your homework, uh, in chapter 1 it, it equates God several times, or Jesus with the one creator God, several times in the first two chapters, probably more high Christology than any other New Testament uh, letter except for John who in chapter 1 is in fact called God, now that we got our gods correctly, is able to sympathize with us through uh, and with our suffering. The Greek word is sympatheo, made up of sin, meaning with, and to, uh, and, path oh, I'm sorry, and pathos, to feel, and thus to feel with. We all know someone who has suffered the same pain as us is able to comfort and strengthen us in our darkest hours as opposed to someone who has not been through what we have. For God, it is no different. God, as Hebrews says, shared in their humanity so that he could save us from the power of death through dying and rising again. Wiest translates verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is not able to enter experientially into a fellow feeling with our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So I'll quote someone here. Hopefully I can read this. The word in the Greek is sumpetheo, and this is Kenneth Weiss commentating or commenting on that passage. 
The word in the Greek is sympatheo, from sympatheo. The word pathos, the Greek word there is pathéo, comes from pasco, which means to suffer. The prefixed proposition means with. The compound word means to suffer with another person, thus to sympathize with him to the extent of entering into his experience and feeling his heartache yourself. The use of the word here means more than a knowledge of human infirmity. It points to a knowledge that has in it a feeling for the other person by reason of a common experience with that person. Our Lord's appreciation of our infirmities is an experiential one based upon the fact that he was tempted like we are. This is quite renowned and radical in the first century. Even the Jews had, a, for the most part, a view of God that was holy and set apart, uh, so holy that he couldn't enter into our sufferings, though he was able to have mercy and compassion. So no one in the ancient world actually held to a belief. The Stoics with their apathetic God, the Epicureans with their gods who lived far, far away, the Christians come along, and in the letter of Hebrews says, no, God is not apatheia. God is not apathetic. Rather, God is sympatheo. God enters into human suffering. God is sympathetic. He has a fellow feeling of experience. In other words, when we're going through whatever you know, pain or hurt or suffering that we're going through, he's not the God unmoved, untouched, uh, you know, at the helm of the universe as the God of apatheia. He's a God who actually enters into human suffering and plight. There's someone there, if you will, patting you on your back, understanding exactly and precisely what you're going through. Quite revolutionary in the ancient world. And even again, we need to understand that when we discuss evil, uh, evil and why the Creator God exists, we have to do business with this, these passages as well. This is not a God untouched by human plight. The Great High Priest. The one who shares an experiential fellow feeling is also our great high priest. These concepts belong together because it was the Levitical high priest that interceded on behalf of sinful Israel before Yahweh. What Hebrews is trying to say is that Jesus, as the new covenant high priest, both meets the qualifications to do so and at the same time far exceeds anything the Levitical priesthood could ever hope to accomplish. So there's our high priest. Um, the high priest, again, in, in, for Judaism or those Jews who had the tabernacle and eventually the, temp the second temple and the temple, this was their high priest. The high priest, if you will, had to be of Levitical descent, specifically Zedekite line, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. Uh, the high priest was the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which I'll show you subsequently. But the high priest functions somewhat as a mediator, a bridge between God and man, so to speak. He also revealed God to man in his holiness and set apartness. If you will, he images God at one level. Now, he also represents man to God. He's a bridge builder, God to man, man to God. And as one who is a human being on the Day of Atonement, once a year, Yom Kippur, would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood had, that had been slain, sprinkle it on the floor and on the mercy seat of the, uh, all, the mercy seat. What, what the heck is that thing called? I can't think. Ark of the Covenant. Oh, my gosh. So I got it covered all my bases except for that one. Ark of the Covenant. Um, and then he would come out and if basically say, all sins are atoned, raise his hands, everyone know Israel, and God had been uh, redeemed. And at that point, he, when he was in the Holy of Holies, would, if you will, bring supplication on behalf of Israel. So the high priest is the mediating agent between both Israel uh, and 
Yahweh himself. What Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is a high priest much in this fashion. What's important, though, the big hang-up for Jews in the first century would have been, yeah, how can Jesus be our high priest if he's not of Levitical descent? Because when you read Torah, the only people who were allowed to be a high priest were those of Levite descent. Jesus is from Judah. He's not, so he does not meet the qualifications. So what Hebrews does is pluck out someone of the Old Testament named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's an insider joke. I'm going to really try not hard. It's even like crucifixion. I just, I have to really think not to say it. Uh, but this high priest in the Old Testament was someone interesting. He was neither Levitic, uh, a Levitical priesthood nor of uh, a Judah lineage. He is a priest of the Most High God in Genesis, I believe, 14 off the top of my head, who is both king, because that word means two, both king and righteous. So he's both a high priest and king of Salem. So he's someone in the Old Testament, a priesthood in the Old Testament that is seen functioning both as priesthood, both as ruler. So what our Hebrews writer is saying here, this is no problem for Jesus not being of Levitical descent because he's of an order altogether of another Old Testament personage who can be both priest and king. And of course, Psalm 110, uh, which is in a coronation psalm, speaks of uh, someone being ordained according to this specific priesthood. Melchizedek. <laughs> Just say it nice and slow. Here's the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, of course, the high priest. Back, back. I, I don't know if this thing's going to screech, so I'm being real tentative here when I move. Uh, this compartment here, the holy place, was made up of two compartments. And this back here was the holy of holies, and then in here was the holy place, the brazen labor that had water filled in it, and then the altar where the sacrifices were made. The Day of Atonement is precisely when uh, Yahweh's, as N.T. Wright would say, Shekinah, Shekinah, uh, would come down and then uh, with the high priest having offered the blood would uh, accomplish atonement for the year. And the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which in one sense was the footstool of God on earth. Uh, what's going to be important is Hebrews later argues that Jesus himself goes into a holy of holies, only he goes in behind the veil of heaven. Uh, remember, creation, heaven and earth are a temple. These aren't a far ways away. This is, that would be deism, and that would be Epicureanism. The Jewish worldview uh, looked at heaven and earth as a temple. So Jesus can both function in heaven, a holy of holies, but yet be accomplishing things for the creation portion of creation uh, or the material, per the earth portion of creation. So we, we got to get rid of this dualism. We have to put them together because all of creation is supposed to be a temple. It's supposed to be a cosmic sanctuary. And what Hebrews goes on to say is that Jesus enters the Holy of Holies, only it's the very throne room of God, which is far superior than uh, anything the Levitical priests could ever accomplish. Now, according to Hebrews, the high priest had to meet certain qualifications and I guess what Hebrews is going on to say that Jesus does meet these. The Levitical thing is not a problem. He is in the order of Melchizedek. However, there are certain other ramifications that need to be met. So we'll go over some of these. And this is what Hebrews 4 and 5 are saying. Uh, that's what happens when you uh, push a button. Can someone save me here? Return. There's an escape button on here? 
Thank you. I found it. Okay. Ah, here it is. Okay. So Hebrews actually goes on to list several qualifications for a high priest. Remember, Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is, in fact, superior to the high priest of the Levites. Now, some of the qualifications that Jesus does, in fact, need to meet, he cannot sidestep, are these. Hebrews, number one, says solidarity. And, of course, they're all S's, which is, makes it easier to memorize. I wish I had that guy from the movie Dodgeball. And he's like, duck, dive, dodge, whatever, to say these. Uh, but solidarity, the first thing he has to have is solidarity. Every high priest, as Hebrews says, is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. And then it goes on to say that Jesus himself did not, in a sense, presume, but it was said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, if you will, has been selected just like Aaron had been selected in Exodus 28. When you go back to Exodus 28, Yahweh tells Moses, Select Aaron and his sons, they sh shall serve me perpetually as high priests. So even Aaron in the Old Testament had to be selected, and in one sense, Jesus himself does not presume into this office. Yahweh himself has selected him according to the order of Melchizedek. Only he's going to officiate, and he's going to be a high priest for all of creation. So solidarity. Uh, he is selected from among men. This is important. This is the mystery of why the second person of the Trinity has to take on human flesh in one sense. Because high priests are chosen from among the people. God doesn't go somewhere else and choose someone from outside of Israel to be a high priest for Israel. No, he chooses someone squarely from within Israel. In one sense, this is what God has to do with all of humanity. If he wants to become a high priest, remember, he has to be a bridge builder. He has to represent God to man and man to God. And Ephesians 1 and, or Hebrews 1 and 2 has already showed it, according to the scriptures, how Jesus is, in fact, one with God. So Jesus is, as John 1, 14 says, is the exegesis of God. As Dr. Scott so wonderfully used to say, he would take God from out behind of a curtain and put him on display. And with that, I think he got that from Wiest, but great way of stating it. Solidarity. So Jesus is from among men. He is chosen because he, he is a part of us, flesh and blood in every way. Second thing is sacrifice. The Old Testament high priest had to have sacrifices to offer on behalf of the sins of the people. So who and what is Jesus' sacrifice? We know full well that this is his own death uh, at Calvary, which the communion points so beautifully to. Jesus himself is enacting a Passah ceremony. Jesus himself will become the Passover sacrifice that frees God's people from God's eschatological judgment. Yes, I got the word in there. So sacrifice for once is to offer God both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus has this as well, only it's his own sacrifice, which is once and for all. And he has to have sympathy, or sympatheo, as we said before. And Hebrews 4.2 says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. And this is wonderful because we have a high priest who is, if you will, in heaven at the Holy of Holies, who's our intermediary, who full well has a knowledge, an experiential knowledge, a fellow feeling of what it's like to undergo human temptation, suffering, hurt, and he can, if you will, have compassion on us for our erring ways, and that's a good thing. So he ha he's a high priest who is sympathetic and compassionate. And selection, uh, and I may have actually combined selection and 
and solidarity, but that's okay. And selection. No one assumes this honor on his own initiative. And then Hebrews goes on to quote Psalm 110, which says, you are a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus has not assumed this honor upon himself. It has been bestowed upon him after the sacrifice made at Calvary. And finally, salvation. He becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And here's, a, uh, here's an important factor. Our salvation uh, includes, of course, the obedience of the nations. Jesus' resurrection meant not only that what he said was true and the way that he proclaimed was the narrow way, was the right way to be human, but Jesus is, in fact, king of the creation. And this means that our allegiances are due him. The word pistis in the Greek meant more than mental assent. It was a trusting, faithful, obedient allegiance. I mean, all those nuances are bound up in that word pistis when brought into a political context. And eternal salvation, even in Hebrews, is not heaven, you guys. Again, uh, it's better life of the age to come. And this is a new creation. This is resurrection. And so allegiance to Jesus, if you will, and salvation because of his sacrifice is right there for us. We have eternal life in the age to come. So in closing... Sympathy here is an attribute of God that the ancient world never expected. This facet of Calvary shows us that when Jesus suffered at the cross, it was in fact the one creator God entering into the depths of human pain and sorrow. God assumed human nature and walked a mile in our shoes. For those hungry and thirsty, we hear Jesus say, I thirst. For those under the heel of injustice, we see Jesus falsely accused. For those suffering physical pain, there the Son of God is with a pierced side and lacerated back. For all of us who must eventually face death, and that's everyone in here, Jesus himself cries, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Thus, it is indeed this disfigured man on a cross who is our great high priest. One, because he has sank to the depths of our human suffering is able to raise us up in salvation to eternal life in the world to come. And Om Sankai Him captures it well. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed. Now how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. And I'll quote, I'm going to actually quote, uh, close with one quote here by Philip Hacking, and I think it's a good point, especially within a postmodern age that doesn't like absolutes. Uh, this is a good quote on kind of what we've been talking about. Here truth is pushed to the extremes of credulity as we read that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And of course, in Hebrews, it calls Jesus the archegos, which is the first goer, which means he's trailblazing a path. And since we're obeying him, since we're following him, what's it, what it's in what it's suggesting is that there may be suffering in the path of following Jesus. And this is seen in Hebrews 10, when the people are persecuted and imprisoned, and they shared sufferings with their fellow brethren who had in fact received this. And of course, it's difficult for us in this context to make sense of that, but we try. This willingly obedient substitute sacrifice becomes also the unique high priest representing us in heaven. Remember, not a far ways away. Little wonder is it that this writer wants to plead with his readers in danger of a cowardly return to the security of the old ways, old days. To think again, in the climate of today, the same temptation to opt for a quiet life 
faced, uh, when faced with a philosophy which hates above all things that assumed intolerance of any dogmatic truth must be resisted. In other words, we live in a postmodern age when you try to make a truth claim, it automatically people try to resist that. Well, that's just your view. That's what you say. That's how you perceive things. And of course, we can accept the postmodern critique. We all have a subjectiveness to the way we view things. But it doesn't mean that there's not a coreness of truth and there isn't a reality to which our, all our subjective views see things. And of course, the scriptures are saying this is the truth, this is the way, this is the life. Uh, and Christianity presents that. So of course, that's, if you will, going to be a way of persecution in one sense within a postmodern framework. Even if it means taking up a tiny cross on behalf of our suffering Savior. I'm going to say the closing prayer and then we'll enter into dialogue. Fair enough? O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from the godly union and unity, that, as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, so we may be all of one heart and, on all, and of one soul united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity. And may the one mind and one mouth glorify you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, the discussion today... Since we are now, and this is always key to understanding, this is why we do theology. This is why the church does theology. That is, we speak and act of what God has done through redemptive history. The story we tell and the story that we live out is supposed to line up with the story of God. And so we see in the New Testament the next phase, so to speak, of Jesus' ministry. In one sense, he has accomplished it in toto. He's done it all. But this, unfortunately, doesn't mean that we can rest because Jesus wants to accomplish the next phase of his ministry through the church. So this means, in one sense, we become high priests. And this means we must represent God to others in the world who are in darkness. And at the same time, we must take the cares of the world to God on behalf of the world which is precisely what Romans 8 says, to fly finally found me.